0: Matthew 21, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. The message entitled, The Coming King of the Jews. The Encyclopedia Britannica uses 20,000 words to tell about Jesus and never hinted that he did not exist. This is more words than the Britannica allowed for Aristotle, Alexander the Great, Cicero, Julius Caesar, or Napoleon Bonaparte. H.G. G. Wells blasphemed Jesus yet he felt compelled to discuss Jesus on ten pages in his outline of history and never question that a man named Jesus did not live we have before us an incredible passage, the traditional called triumphal entry that unfolds for us in the threefold movement let me read our passage for us here Beginning of verse 1. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem, and they came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell The daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and they did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them and set them on him. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then the multitude who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna. To the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem. All the city was moved saying. Who is this? And so the multitude said. This is Jesus the prophet. From Nazareth of Galilee. The traditional. Triumphal entry so called. Unfolds for us in three. Full movement here. First. We have the plan to prepare his entry in verses 1 through 3. Secondly, we have the prophecy fulfilled by his entry in verse 4 and 5. And thirdly, the procession at the entry 6 through 11. We begin with the plan to prepare for his entry, verse 1 through 3. Notice in verse 1, Jesus arrived not far from Jerusalem. It says, now when they had drawn Near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Some of you will be with us next week. We'll take off and we'll be there. Uh, it's a beautiful place. The city of Jerusalem was the final destination. He has come up from Jericho. Remember, uh, the name Jerusalem in the Hebrew and Greek just a little different. Uh, Hebrew is, is teaching of peace, and in uh, Greek, double peace. Um, it appears for the first time in the Bible. Um, early in in the days of Genesis there, but it appears more times than any other city, 776 times, 635 in the Old Testament, 141 in the New. The next city is Babylon, 264 in the Old Testament, 253, or 264 total, and two. 53 of the Old, and 91 in the New Testament. These two cities are rivals, side by side. All evil comes from Babylon. Jerusalem is the heaven from above, the city of God, the city of David, we'll see. The city was called Jebus in Joshua 18, 38, 1 Chronicles eleven four, and other passages, um, meaning threshing place. The city of Jerusalem was a pagan city initially. The first time Jerusalem is mentioned is in the book of Joshua, ten one through 2, uh, who had a king named Adonai Zedek. My Lord is righteous, a Canaanite king. Remember, it's the land of Canaan, not the land of Palestine, the land of Canaan. Okay? So tell that to your historians and CNN. Um, later, the city of Jerusalem was occupied by the Jebusites, if you remember, uh, he, they mocked David. They, even the blind and lame couldn't take the city. David took the city, 2 Samuel 5, 7 through 10. And then it was called the city of David. Luke says the disciples, notice, thought the kingdom of God was to be manifested immediately as they were going to Jerusalem, Luke 19, 11. So Jesus gave a parable of the minas revealing that the kingdom was going to be delayed. But the disciples, as we've seen, are dead set that the kingdom is going to be set up. They, they didn't connect the dots. The parable of the minas focused on a nobleman who went away to a far country to receive a kingdom, as you know, for himself. And he would return and then those servants he has delegated business to, he would reward them and he would um, punish those who were unfaithful in Luke 19, 12 through 14. The nobleman in that parable is very clearly Jesus. Now, when that nobleman does return, again, he would reward those servants, and then um, he would destroy those who had not submitted to him. Uh, the primary application was to the Jews. Secondary is the Gentile. Now, the 12 apostles, as you know, were always interested in who was the grace in the kingdom. We've seen that uh, through Matthew, Luke records it also 946 22 the last time is right before the um the passover the lord's supper and jesus got tired just took a bowl and water and a towel and washed their feet they just didn't connect the dots um james and john have just bidded for the right and the left hand along with their mommy uh to reign in the kingdom as soon as they get to jerusalem i mean they were dead sure we're not good. Man, we're we're there. This is the Mount of Olives. We're just two miles away from the kingdom. <laughs> they could taste it. Notice at the end of 1, verse 1, Jesus came from Jericho to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. The disciples had just heard Jesus proclaim salvation to Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. And maybe they thought this was just like a shadow with all the congregation, the multitudes following that what's going to happen as soon as they get there. I mean, emotions are high. You get, you get this in Luke 19, 2 through 8. Um, the route that they travel is probably the same dangerous route that we read in the, um, the Prodigal Son. I'm sorry, the Good Samaritan, where he goes and he's assaulted. Uh, and in the early 70s and 80s, we used to go to Israel when we went then. Uh, we used to take the, you know, the big buses like we'll take this next week. But the road was real windy and dangerous, and, and the road was so narrow that the buses seemed like they'd go off and people would freak out and everything out. But those drivers are crazy, but they're, 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 they're good. Never lost one. Uh, now it's nice and wide, no big deal. Um, now the city of Bethphage means House of Unripe Figs, and it was located um, near Bethany, as the scriptures tell us. We, we don't know exactly the location. We do know about Bethany. But it was approximately two miles from Jerusalem on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is very key within the scriptures. The Mount of Olives is where Solomon built his pagan temples for his wives in 1 Kings 11.7. The prophet Zechariah says that Jesus will return uh, with his church and put his foot on the Mount of Olives. It will crack in two and a water source will come out of Jerusalem. Uh, It's amazing. Zechariah 14.4. The Mount of Olives is um, an incredible vantage point for the temples. He's coming over, and he's seeing that. Um, just as David, when he was chased out of the kingdom by his son Absalom, and he left brokenhearted and barefooted, and he spe- spent the top of their mountain to look back over the city, well, Jesus would be coming and looking to the city, knowing they are going to reject him. And he's going to have to pronounce judgment. Matthew from here on, you see judgment, judgment, judgment over the Jew, Israel, and the city. Now, notice at the end of verse 1 down to 3, Jesus imparted instructions to enter Jerusalem. Um, Jesus sent some disciples to bring a cult. Then a uh, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied in the cold with her. Loose them and bring them to me. The two are not named in any other gospel. Uh, Mark and Luke don't mention two, only Matthew. But as we'll see, John compliments that the command notice is to go into the village opposite. Mark those little things opposite. The village is not named, but it's hard to believe that it would be Bethany for Jesus has just spent all the day before at Bethany. He has just left Bethany, though they're in the vicinity, opposite you cannot be Bethany. has to be another village. Um, this is Sunday. John makes this clear. When he arrived at Bethany six days before the Passover, that would be Saturday, and um, a supper was given in the honor of Jesus. Lazarus was there. Martha was serving, and Mary took a pound of uh, Spinkner and um, washed his feet and dried them with her hair in John 12, 1 through 3. So you have uh, all four Gospels collaborating this event that's going on, and you get the full picture of it. Now, they would find a donkey. Notice he says there in verse 1 at the end They're tied with their coal, a young donkey, with no problem indicating uh, by the word there, uh, straightway. So the minute they walked in, they have no problem. They're not going to be searching. It's going to be right before them. Jesus knew everything. No one had to tell him anything. When he asked questions, it wasn't for information. Uh, Mark and Luke confirmed by adding that the colt had never sat, or, or the court had never been ridden. No man had sat upon him. In Mark eleven two and Luke nineteen thirty, who in his right mind would sit on a donkey, a horse, or any beast of burden without being broken first? Here you have creation submitting to the Creator in every way, as He is uh, fulfilling prophecy, as we'll see. Look at verse three. Jesus told them. The owner would question them about the cult. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them, again revealing his omniscience, his foreknowledge. This could have been a word of knowledge that Jesus gave to the man from where he was at. He did that to the apostles. Or this could be a prearrangement. We're not told. It's one or the other. But the minute the man would hear the Lord has need of him, he would obey and conform to it, possibly a disciple of Jesus. Mark and Luke again confirmed this information. You know, when Queen Victoria resided in Baltimore, Baltimore Castle, um, she would sometimes enjoy a walk in the district incognito. On one occasion, she slipped out by the side gate and accompanied by her faithful servant john brown who followed behind along the road she came on a flock of sheep being driven by a boy who shouted keep out of the way stupid old woman Um, the queen smiled but she said nothing and when her servant came along he informed the lad that she was the queen the boy said huh well said the boy she should dress like a queen Jesus divested himself of his glory, being God, and he took on flesh. That's why they didn't recognize him as God. Everybody would have been destroyed. He had to veil his glory. Never divested him of his deity, only his glory. Do you believe what the Bible teaches about Jesus? That he's God incarnate. That he was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. That he died for your sins, that he rose from the dead. Just to mention those few. There's many, many others. If you don't believe those, then it's impossible for you to be saved. It's impossible for you to be a Christian. You can't be one. You can't just say he's a nice man, he's moral, he's a good prophet, he's the best teacher. Not good enough. You've got to believe that he's God who became man, died for your sins, rose from the dead, and he's the only one that can forgive you of your sins and give to you eternal life. God's revelation of truth. Jesus said in John five thirty nine to the leaders of the Jews, he says, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they that testify of me. Red thread from Genesis to Revelation beginning in Genesis three fifteen, the seed of the woman, Isaiah seven fourteen, the virgin shall bear a son, Micah 5, 2, and Bethlehem all the way to Revelation. Over and over and over again. Is your theology biblical? Or is it denominational? Do you teach and repeat like a parrot what people have taught you? Or do you examine and search out and confirm what you're taught? If you just believe what I say without searching the scriptures and inquiring of it, then you're a candidate for deception. Is that simple. Do you agree with the Bible that Israel is the wife put away by divorce that will be reconciled to God and that the church is the bride of Christ, two distinct groups – the bride being made of Jew and Gentile? Or do you believe that the church is spiritual Israel and God is through with Israel? That's called replacement theology. Totally contrary to the scriptures and the majority of churches, Fuller Seminary, APU, most Christian universities teach that. It tweaks your your prophetic picture. It's like going shooting with a gun that has no, the sights are off. You'll never hit the bullseye. You never will. The bride, looking for a wedding. The wife, she's been wed. She's been put away. There's a big difference between them. Israel will be saved in the, the remnant. Paul says, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Do you um, believe what the scripture says, that God's going to remove his church, that's what's called the rapture, and then set up the kingdom? Our apostle instantly, violently, suddenly, he's gonna take his church out of here before the seven year tribulation. Do you believe that? Or are you selective in your theology, biased by your own expectation, like the Jews were here? Totally off scripture. They think the kingdom's coming. No such thing was gonna happen. Second Peter three, fifteen through sixteen warns us. He says, uh, and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation as also Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. There are people that handle the scripture very dishonestly and very blasphemous. They teach the Bible subjectively, not inductively in inductive Bible method with context, cultural background, and grammar. And therefore they teach it just subjectively, you know, like Mother Hubbard went to the cover and found the bear. So you know, you're Mother Hubbard and you need something, and you go there and you're kinda empty and you find nothing. And it's really your heart and you just give subjective meaning to everything else. And you don't stick to the scriptures, you don't have a scripture and interpret scripture, and therefore Uh, The Bible is just um, make believe and do what you want. You know how many pastors teach like that? Because people want to be entertained today. They're very visual. A lot of times you people ask me to put stuff up here. I don't teach that way. I want you to use your brain. I want you to open your Bible. I want you to write down. I want you to put there no X and then come and ask me questions. All right? I want you to think. Are you a Christian who is a servant of Christ and he's your king or just Christian in name? The Christians to occupy, do business till he comes, Jesus said in Luke 19:13. Are you doing that? Are you doing business for the kingdom? The person who will not have Jesus to rule over them now will one day bow his knees forcefully in judgment. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given a name above every other name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven and earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so right now he's very gracious. He's through the gospel pro- proclaiming the good news. And people open their heart. They're born again like you and I were. And um, we get to enjoy life a lot better than we did before by his grace. But one day this age will close. And then there will be the seven-year tribulation. Then there will be the second coming of judgment. And people will by force be judged by Jesus. So the plan prepared for his entry was carried out perfectly. Second comes the prophecy fulfilled by his entry in verse 4 through 7 here. Notice in verse 4, <clears throat> the entry to Jerusalem was Prophecy, don't mistake in it. Matthew, um, writing to the Jews, reminded them of the importance of the scriptures. This is always the plumb line, ladies and gentlemen. I am not the authority nor you, the scriptures. He says, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying. He specifies all. All that was taking place right then and there was the fulfillment of prophecy. The repeated phrase, that it might be fulfilled, appears 14 times in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a key phrase. Six times it is written. The Jews were responsible for the oracles, the word of God. God had chosen them. No one else had the scriptures. The prophet is not named, but. <clears throat> the quotation reveals that it is the prophet Zechariah. If you remember our study of Zechariah, what an incredible 14 chapters just visions and, and prophecies are incredible. The last six chapters of Zechariah deal with two burdens. If you remember, regarding the Gentile and Israel, vocal prophecies, not visions. The first ones are visions, the last ones are vocal. Now the future concern for Israel and the Gentile nation is the focus in those chapters. And the simple division is, two, depicted by the phrase burden, implying judgment. The burden against the Gentile centers on the Messiah's first coming and rejection of Christ with inferences to the second coming, Zechariah 9, 10, and 11. The burden against Israel centers on the Messiah's second coming and enthronement with inferences to his first coming, chapter 12, 13, and 14. These last three chapters will be fulfilled during the seven-year tribulation and the kingdom age with very few exceptions. Now look at verse 5. The entry to Jerusalem was a prophecy regarding the first coming. The text Matthew quotes is only one verse, verse 9 of Zechariah 9. This verse prophesies that the first coming, but the quote is not verbatim or exactly word for word. And this is 550 years after it's been predicted, by the way. (laughs) There are important omissions, we will point out, that deal with the second coming with verse 10 of Zechariah 9. The verse, notice, predicts the first coming In the second coming of Jesus Christ, as many Old Testament prophecies contain a short-term and long-term fulfillment. Second Samuel 7, 12 through 16, Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, just two examples. The one address, notice, is the city. Let's walk through it. Tell the daughter of Zion. Zion here means the parched place. This was the hill on which the higher and more ancient part of Jerusalem was built. The cities personified the daughter of Zion. The announcement was, behold, your king is coming to you. Behold means to see, perceive. It's an imperative command. Not a suggestion. It's in the middle voice command with a singular, not the plural, meaning each individual is commanded to do this for themselves. You cannot be safe for someone else. You cannot respond to God for someone else. Salvation is individual. The command is individual here. Notice the person of importance to be recognized, your king. It's coming to you. He's talking to the Jews. Matthew's writing to the Jew. Jesus was Jewish. Not Mexican. Not American. Not Russian. Jewish. Matthew gives the genealogy of Jesus through the line of David. In Matthew chapter 1. through Solomon um, and Nathan, it's an ascension. And then Mary is given her genealogy by Luke in Luke three twenty three through 38. But it's um, not through Solomon, but Nathan, because Coniah was cursed from the line. But it didn't matter um, on both of them because Mary was the mother. Joseph was not the father. So Coniah's is on the line of Joseph. But it doesn't matter because he's not the father. But they were both in line of the throne of David. And that's the point. Okay, one's an ascension, the other one's a descension. From Adam up and from Joseph back down. Now, Matthew wrote his gospel presenting Jesus as King of the Jews, as you know. Him. The wise men came from the east and they asked Pilate, it says, "Where is he who has been born King of the Jews?" We have seen a star in the east in Matthew two one and two. Jesus affirmed to Pilate. Pilate said, are you king of the Jews? Jesus said, it is as you say, Matthew 27, 11. We're going to see this as we move along. The soldiers put a crown on the Lord's head, gave him a reed, bowed and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, Matthew 27, 29. The plaque over the head of Jesus on the cross read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, Matthew 27, 37. Matthew presents Jesus as king of the Jews. Mark as a servant of man. Luke as a son of man. John as a son of God. Four different vantage points. Notice the character of the king. Lowly means humble, gentle. In contrast to proud. Jesus identified himself as such. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. In Matthew 11. 29. Notice the confirmation of his kingship in sitting on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. Kings rode on donkeys a sign of royalty like David and Solomon. Back in Samuel 1 Kings one thirty-two and 33 also. Matthew and John mentioned two donkeys, the donkey and her colt. Mark and Luke only mentioned one. Contradiction? Nope. John verifies the two. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. There's the phrase again. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. No contradiction, only supplementary information to give you the complete picture of what's going on here. Jesus um, wrote on one The colt, not both. And because some people get confused, we'll move on. I'll make the distinction between sitting on them, the cloth, the garments, not both of the donkeys. Now, traditionally, this has been called the triumphal entry, as you know. But only from the heavenly perspective. As Jesus is entering Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. What an incredible triumph in heaven. But from the earthly perspective, it was the tragic rejection as the Jews rejected their Messiah, the king. Here is Zechariah 9.9. In fact, the third day, Jesus, the first day he comes in, he looks at the temple leaves. The second day he comes in, he turns over the table. The third day he comes in, he weeps over Jerusalem and says, If you would have known this your day, the things to prepare for you, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And he declares the judgment of Titus in 70 AD to destroy The city, the temple, and they will have no homeland for two thousand years until nineteen forty eight, May fourteenth. We're gonna be there for the seventh year, seventieth year anniversary. We were there twenty years ago for the Jubilee, the fiftieth year. Boy the city jumps. Incredible, amazing. This was no ordinary man. This was no ordinary day. The prophecy of Zechariah is tied to another amazing prophecy that was being fulfilled but is not mentioned at this point, the 70th week of Daniel in Daniel 9:24 to 26. The 69 weeks are multiplied by 7. They comprise 483 years. The prophecy is based on a 360-day biblical year of Genesis, not the Gregorian or Julian calendar of 365. That would make it 173,880 days. What was needed was the countdown. And the countdown is given to us on March 14, 445 B.C. When Artaxerxes gave the command to Nehemiah to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. From that point forward, 483 years or 173,880 days fell on April the 6, 32 A.D., Right when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on this cold. God sure is lucky, isn't He? Hmm. John gives us his commentary about Jesus entering on the cold because John, you know, is the last author and writer. He writes around 95 or so. So he gives commentary in some of his gospel. And he says this in John twelve sixteen. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. All of a sudden, the light came on, but not right now. So the important omissions of Matthew are as important as the fulfillment of details that we've looked at. In verse 9 in the book of Zechariah, Matthew didn't quote everything in there. Let me give you the words he didn't quote in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, shout in the phrase, He is just and having salvation, indicating deliverance or victory. That is the fulfillment of the second coming, not the first coming. So those words in verse 9 are for the second coming as well as verse 10 of Zechariah 9. So these words and verse 10 are all for the second coming. Verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bowl shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's establishing of the kingdom. The second coming. Verse 10. Now look at verse 6 and 7. The disciples were agents to fulfill this prophecy. The disciples conducted themselves as servants, so the disciples went in and did as Jesus commanded them. Uh, but remember, they, they've got also an ulterior motive, right? You know, you're a parent, you know that. Oh, your kid. Oh, kid, we're going to go camping. Oh man, they're working with you, this and that. But you know, if you want to clean the garage, but you can't, hey, where's he at? I don't know where he's at. I can't remember, they're, they, they're thinking a little different here. The two were obedient. They went and did as Jesus had told them. And the two were submitting themselves to the command of Jesus here. Mark nineteen um, or, or Mark 11.4 says, So they went their way and uh, found the coal tied by the door outside the street. And they lose him. Luke says, So they were sent. They went their way. Found it just as he had said to them. Everything just smooth. The two others are not the gospels. Mark and Luke, give us the interaction of the two disciples when they are confronted by the man who owned them. Uh, so we don't get it here by Matthew, but you have it in Mark 11, 3 through 6, and in Luke 19, verse 32 through 34. So as you put them together, you get the full picture again. Now look at verse 7. The disciples assisted Jesus. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. Set him on them, the garments, not the two donkeys. They only set him on one. So you have to distinguish the them, the first them from the second them. The two disciples returned with the donkey and her colt for the king of the Jews to ride on. The two disciples laid their clothes or garments on both the colt and the colt. And the donkey, and the two disciples then said, "Jesus, on the garments that were placed on the colt." Jesus did not ride on both the donkey and the colt; only on the colt. Mark and Luke confirm this. You know, Daniel Webster, in the prime of his manhood, was dining with um, some of his young companion um, of. Um, of the library there in Boston and the conversation turned to the subject of Christianity and Mr. Webster expresses belief in the divinity of Jesus Christ and his dependency for atonement as a savior. One said to him, Mr. Webster, can you comprehend how Christ could be both God and man? Mr. Webster promptly replied, no, sir, I cannot comprehend it. If I could comprehend it, He would be no greater than myself. I feel that I need a superhuman savior. Great answer. People are always going to try to challenge your faith in terms of trying to show you how the Bible is so idiotic and so foolish. But if you know the word of God, it will be reversed. Guaranteed. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his first coming. What would make you believe that he's not going to fulfill the rest or even come the second time? On what basis would you base that? Maybe he's batting 100% so far. You know God can't lie, right? (laughs) Interesting. The accuracy of biblical prophecy is confirmable. The Bible is unique and contains prophecy about the future that uh, no one else knows. It can be easily verified. The Old Testament probably some incredible prophecy. We've gone through many of them. Um, the personal uh, testimony uh, through the prophets. Many people say, well, you know, the Bible is just a book like any other book. Really? When that person says that, they've never read the Bible or investigated the Bible. In fact, you have heard... Many such statements as, well, you know, the Bible has many mistakes and contradictions. Next time somebody tells you that, open your Bible, give it to them, say, show me one. Where, where, on what book? And then just have some fun say, why don't you turn to the book of Hezekiah and look for one. He'll be there all day. There's no book of Hezekiah. Okay? <laughs> but what I'm saying is people speak of their ignorance confidently. Ignorance. But it's evil in intent. Through the scriptures there are various phrases that indicate and assure us that it is God's revelation of absolute truth prophetically. The word of the Lord came to me. The word of the Lord filled my mouth. The Lord said right. This is done in fulfillment of and many, many, many other phrases that guarantee what you have in your lap is God's inerrant, and infallible word. Listen to um, Second Peter 1 20 and 21, Peter says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures is of any private interpretation. Um, private interpretation is a bad translation. It's, it's better to put it this way that the prophecy of all that, um, is not of any personal origin or impulse. In other words, it didn't come of their own person. As I read the rest, it'll explain it. It says, For prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried by the Holy Spirit. In other words, when they were regular people just walking, they they didn't speak infallibly. But when God anointed them to write the scriptures, you can see the difference between Paul and Peter's writing, the personality. But as they wrote, the Holy Spirit was directing and guiding them so that what you possess is God's inerrant, infallible word. Now, the majority of Christian universities do not believe that. Seminaries do not believe that. The majority of churches do not believe that. We believe that the Bible is God's inerrant, infallible word. Not one yod or one tittle will fail from being fulfilled. Because if we don't believe that, who's going to tell me what is inspired and what is not? You? A PhD? I don't think so. There are those in the church that believe they are going to bring in and establish the kingdom age. Wrong. They're like the apostles. The kingdom is now present through the believer of the church. Jesus brought in the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom, but it's part of the kingdom. The church will not establish the kingdom. Jesus will establish the kingdom. Jesus will rapture us. We'll be with him for seven years, go through the beam of of Christ, the marriage. We'll come back, battle of Armageddon. We'll have our thousand-year honeymoon, okay? God is not through with Israel. The church is simply just part of the kingdom, and yet you have some of the most popular teachers on Christian radio and television teaching kingdom theology that we are going to establish the kingdom the world's going to get better and better and better really okay Luke 11:20 Jesus said but if i cast out demons with the finger of god surely the kingdom of god has come upon you. In other places, said the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Do you know when Jesus returns the second time that he will triumph by destroying all the armies of the nations that will be there in the Valley of Megiddo, trying to stop him from setting up the kingdom? He has triumphed victoriously at the cross. He will triumph victoriously at the second coming also. Everything is being set up for the Antichrist. When I was born again in the early 70s and the 80s, I was teaching about the end times. Once we crossed over the year 2000, specifically after 201, we moved into our new century of amorality. No objective truth, all subjective vocabulary changed. Purposely, And mm. everything is being turned into an information age that's being prepared for the Antichrist. If you go to your bank, banks are discouraging cash deposits. They do not want large cash deposits at all. Go to your bank and withdraw $1 over $10,000 just to pull it out. They will question you. They will want more information. We're moving to a cashless society. India will be the first nation that is moving to a cashless society. All information, Mr. Obama, he uh, take care of all your electronic information, your medical information. It's all in Washington. It's all there through those eight years. At the flick of a finger. Everything. You think, and all you guys are on your FaceTime and all this, whatever, All the name, I don't even know all the names of the stuff. You're giving away all your privacy. Too much information out there. Everything is logged. You think these websites, they, they respect your privacy? My Lord. Santa Maria, Madre de Dios. Are you kidding me? A bunch of liars! At the flick of a finger, the Antichrist is going to have your name, everything, if you're around here. No cash. It'll probably come a point where they'll say, we're going to give you five months, six months, a year. All your cash has to be turned in, and therefore it's all recorded. Otherwise, it's worthless after that. Why? They want every transaction. They want everything. Now, where it's going, who has it, why you're spending it. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in the last days. No man knows the day or the hour, but you better be looking. You better be looking. John put it this way. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of this prophecy of this book. Revelation 27, 7. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to every man according to his works. Revelation 22, 12. He who testifies of these things, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Revelation 22:20. 20. What is it that we don't understand? It is coming suddenly. That's the word. In such a time as you think not. The prophecy fulfilled by his entry was misunderstood completely. Third and last, the procession at the entry. Look at 8 through 11. In eight, many disciples prepared the way before him. And the people revered Jesus. A very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. They cast their garments on the road, prepared the route here, welcoming Jesus into the city. Um, They did so submitting themselves to him. Um, You you look at the outside, but but what you see outside is not always what's going on on the inside 100%. The people decorated the way also before Jesus. It's like one of the feast days. It's one of the major ones. Others cut down branches from the um, trees. They spread them on the road. Uh, Luke confirms this, Luke 19.35. The event took place as Jesus began the descent. Luke 19:37 says, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the descent led down to the Kidron Valley. You guys will see that next week. Um, and then he would go up to the temple in the early 70s and 80s. We used to go down this place. It was all dirt. So it was very slippery. It's all paved since then. So you don't have to worry about it. You even have a railing on the side. You don't have to worry about the crazy drivers. They don't kill you, but you're Okay. Um, Jesus would walk across the Kidron Valley as he goes to Gethsemane and he would cross Kidron again and see the blood of the sacrifice going down there. Amazing. John 18, 1 gives us that. And Jesus would also ascend up to heaven from the Mount of Olives. Acts 1, 9 through 12 tells us. Mount of Olives is very important. Now look at 9 through 11. The crowds gave open public worship of Jesus that he allowed... Um, And accepted for the first time in his his ministry. There were two distinct crowds. Don't miss it. The first crowd came from Jerusalem. Then the multitude who went before. The second had come with Jesus from Galilee uh, up through Jericho. And those who followed. Um, Their words of worship uh, were expecting the kingdom again. The words were spoken aloud. They cried aloud. The twelve. The seventy of them were there. The whole multitudes. And the words were a petition. Listen. Saying Hosanna to the son of David. The word Hosanna means to be propitious. That which appeases the wrath of God. Satisfying the demands for sin. An expiation of sin. 1 John 2, 2 says he is the propitiation for our sins. Not ours alone but the whole world. Mark also has Hosanna in Mark eleven nine. The origin of the word Hosanna in the Hebrew is made up of two words, to save or deliver, and putting them together, I beseech or pray from the great Hallel songs that they're quoting here. They would sing the Hallel 113, Psalm 113 to 118 on the feast as they were going up. This one's from Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. They're quoting it specifically. Also in that Psalm, you have the stone that the builders rejected, which will be quoted later on. This prayer was addressed to Jesus to save sinners. The kingdom. The son of David is a messianic title. God incarnate. Bringing in the kingdom age. Notice the words were thankful worship. He says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The word blessed means to speak well or highly of someone. We get our English word eulogy. When you speak well of someone, you eulogize somebody at a funeral. This praise is directed to Jesus. He who comes in the name of... Of the Lord, capital letters, the old Yahweh of the Old Testament, the Father, God the Father. The repetition, Hosanna in the highest, is the most high God. Mark says, blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, Mark eleven ten. Luke puts it this way. The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. For all the mighty works that had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Luke nineteen thirty-seven, thirty-eight. 38. So you get a little piece added to it. You get the whole picture. What went on? Look at verse 10. There was an interest to know who Jesus was. These two verses are found only in Matthew. The time was as Jesus had entered the city, and when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? The word move, we get our English word seismic for earthquake. There was a mental quaking. There was just stirring. The response of the Galilean crowd declared, So the multitude says, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Moses wrote about the prophet, Deuteronomy 18.18. I will require his words at the hand of every man. Wow. Whenever a man or a woman is emotionally driven by their own personal benefit, it is based on a superficial commitment that will not endure through the obstacles and difficult times because it's self-centered. And though a weather vane is very true to show you the direction of the wind, when we use it as an illustration for our, uh, our uncommitted character, it's a beautiful illustration. Many people, most people are like a weather vane. It just depends which way the wind's blowing. They just move with it. As long as everything's okay, oh you're my oh, man, tough Lord's so good. Oh, praise you, Jesus, hallelujah. Jesus is coming, Maranatha, and then things get tough, and oh well, I I don't really know, really. Hmm. Are you as a Christian placing all things at the feet of Jesus Christ, your King, for his service? Your time, your talents, your ability. The gifts of the Holy Spirit that He's given you, your entire heart, your life, everything belongs to Him. Matthew six twenty-four says, No man can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or else you will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Are you being obedient to the Lord in the most basic things that he commands us, all of us, as our King. And loving our wives, our husbands, caring for them, being there for them, being godly parents, not compromising, protecting your children from the educational system, from the legal system, from those that want to turn and take your children away from you, the authority away from you. I hope you do. in an example of where you work where you live whatever it may be the scripture says the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the temple his hands shall also finish it then you will know that i the lord of hosts the captain of the armies of heaven has sent me to you here's the key for who has despised the day of small things The greatest lessons that you and I have ever learned is when we didn't have that much money in the difficult times. When we have to choose between do I get the spare so I can get the car going and go to work or do I fix the washer? Do I do this or do I do that? But we have to be careful that as we've learned those lessons that we don't forget them and we forget where we came from. We become bad stewards, entitled, even self-righteous. We have to be careful. The day of small things, they are so valuable, so valuable. There are people who oppose the worship of Jesus and are bothered by any person who devotes their life or professes their love for Jesus. I mean, if you go to a basketball game, they're all painted pink and blue and everything else, and they're jumping around like a crazy monkey or something, and they think, oh, those those guys are great. But if you would act like that for Jesus, they would say, that guy's a fanatic. Amazing to me. Why is it that so many can accept any form of belief, tolerate any name except for Jesus? Because there's power in the name of Jesus. I've never heard anybody hit their thumb with a hammer and say, Oh Buddha. Oh Allah. Oh Daffy Duck. Uh-uh. Not at all. How is it that they can find value in every culture and people but not see anything good in Christianity and the person of Christ? One word. Evil. Evil. A heart of man's deceitful, desperately wicked above all things. Men and women don't love God. They hate God. You and I hated God. We might not have been hostile towards him, but we lived our life the way we wanted to. We loved the God that we shaped in our own likeness, but not the God of the Bible. We were not looking for God. He was looking for us. He initiated. We responded. We love God because He first loved us. And yet people come and tell me, you know, I love God. How long have you been Christian? Oh, all my life. I was born a Christian. (laughs) Tweak theology. First evidence you're not born again. When you're born again, you know He pulled you out of the gutter. You know you were dead, lost, headed for hell. You you don't paint it rosy or anything else. You know that you know. It's just that simple. Listen to Paul, Romans two four. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Wow. The goodness of God is patience, has mercy towards you and I. Man. Thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. The procession at the entry was played out, listen, superficially. The same crowd was going to tar and feather him and crucify him next day. Yelling just the opposite. Wow. This is the so-called triumphal entry of Jesus to Jerusalem. There's the three-fold movement. The plan to prepare his entry was carried out perfectly. The prophecy fulfilled by his entry was misunderstood completely, and the procession at the entry was played out superficially. Have you come to church this morning to be the church or just to go to church? It's an important question for you to answer for yourself. If you just come to church, you're probably superficial. If you come to be the church, you're probably committed. And time will weigh it out one way or the other. Father, we worship you. We thank you for your grace and love. And Lord, help us. We are so prone to go our own way. There's just not one good thing in us. It's just as we look to you, we depend upon you. And, Lord, I pray even now for those who are listening somewhere in the world, here over the Internet, that you would speak to their hearts that they don't know you, Lord. And if you're out there you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. If you're out there in the world somewhere and you've heard the words that we're talking about, and you believe Jesus is God who became man, and that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, you can call upon him right now, and he will forgive you of your sins and give to you eternal life. His words, His promise, not mine. So if you want to be born again and know that He forgives you of your sin, this is your prayer to Him, a prayer of repentance. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.